week, last week, here's my official sermon starting now. Last week, we had a look at who? Jono mentioned it. Who did we look at last week? Thank you, Jono. We looked at Zacchaeus and about how Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Zacchaeus was willing to do some pretty extreme things just to catch a glimpse of the Lord. And, and what I like about that story last week is that it has a lot of relevance to what we are looking at today. Because it's the Lord emphasizing a reality that we all want, that we're all willing to do when we want something specific. It's the showing of something of that, what all of us, all of us, what we're willing to do, but when we want something specific. For example, um, Uncle Sun Ling. Uncle Sun Ling will drive ridiculous lengths to get some fresh durian. That's what he told me. He just goes to some really like, I don't know how much petrol he wastes, but he goes to the furthest of lengths, to the furthest reaches of Sydney to get some fresh durian. You have Jono, the person who was cheering today, Jono, who, for what he calls joy, runs hundreds of kilometers to run in a race that's just 42 kilometers. Or, or you have, say, like Brad, who gets up the earliest hours before the sun even rises to stand on the side of the ocean with a fishing rod and catch nothing. <laughs> it's amazing the things that we're willing to do. And in other words, there are always prices we are willing to pay when we want to do something. Uh, for example, you, Exodus 33:11, you have Joshua who wants to stay in the tabernacle and never leave. He stays there day and night. He wanted to do that. You have Jonah, who wanted to run away from God's call and plan for his life in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. Or like we looked at last week in, in Luke 19, you have Zacchaeus, who wanted to see Jesus, and so he climbed a tree. They were all willing to pay the price or suffer the consequence of what they wanted. So today we're going to look at, as it says in the title on the video, we're going to look at counting the cost from Luke chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14, of counting the cost of specifically being a disciple. When you look, and John O made reference to this, and when we celebrated communion, that was God counting the cost for your deliverance from sin. When you look at what Jesus had done for us in being born of a virgin, of living a sinless life, of dying a brutal death, of raising again the third day, he was weighing up. He counted the cost of the price that needed to be paid for the salvation of your sin, from your sin. The fact that we were in darkness and condemned to hell, the cost that would pay for him to free us from that condemnation. See, he counted the cost. And when you look at Luke chapter 14, we read from verses 25 to 35, well, what then is the cost for us being a disciple, of us being a follower of Jesus? I heard one preacher say it this way. He said, salvation is free, but it costs you your life. Salvation is free, but it costs you your life. Just read with me before I open a prayer. Read with me, starting off in verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, stop there for a second. One of the most common occurrences that took place in Jesus' ministry was the gathering of people. 
There were crowds everywhere, whether it's John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000 and all the people chased him down because they wanted to make him their king because he fed them with so little, some bread and some fish, and he fed the multitudes. They said, let's make him our king. There was a crowd that chased after him. You have the crowds, I think it's in in Luke chapter 5, where this house was just so packed that four friends had to climb on top of the roof, tear up the roof to let their paralyzed friend down because there were so many people there. There were crowds just surrounding them all the time. You have all these crowds continually, and whatever their motive is, whatever their reason for being there, whether they legitimately wanted to know Jesus or whether they're just seeing what they could get, there were always people around. And so Jesus, I guess you could say, he thins them out. Jesus confronts them. Jesus challenges them. And so in verse 26, we read this. If anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or, verse 31, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, verse 34, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Father, I pray you give us open ears to hear what you have to say to us. We thank you for the cost that you paid in the sending of your son so that we might have life through his death so that we might have reconciliation with you through his resurrection, that we might be made new by your spirit as we trust in you and what you have done for us. I pray this morning as we look at this passage, you will speak to us. As always, Lord, that you'll meet us where we're at and that you'll reveal to us the greatness of who you are so that we, Lord, would, would enter into this journey of walking with you with open eyes and with willing hands. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Counting the cost. Counting the cost. Have you met people that are sort of like really, uh, like they, they often count their pennies. They count their pennies. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with it. I think that's very good, very wise with your money. But you count your pennies. You always count your cost regardless, whatever it might be, of how you want to utilize the resources that you have. Uh, sometimes, though, counting the cost has this added benefit. Counting the cost helps you to let go. We're going to look at three things about counting the cost. And the first thing counting the cost does, it helps you to let go. You read in 26 and 27, there's this really confrontating 
con confrontating, confronting, confrontating, I'm making up words now, this really confronting reality that he portrays here in verses 26 and 27, and it's about relationships, relationships to your family, relationship to your very own life. He says, if you come after me and does not hate their father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. That, that's really huge. The implication that many people take by reading this verse they say that Jesus is commanding his disciples, is commanding us to hate people. He's commanding us to, to distance ourselves or whatever it might be. Um, if you don't hate, then you can't consider yourself a legitimate follower of Christ. Let me explain though, because that when you take that mentality, you have this really us versus them, me versus Jimmy. You know, or, or, or Chris versus Pam. It's, it's really, I'm a Christian versus the non-Christian. That's not what he's talking about here. That can be more harmful to the cause of Christ than beneficial. Jesus is not prompting or promoting hatred of others. He's not doing that here in this passage, okay? I want to clarify this. He's not promoting that at all because it goes completely against God's laws. What's the fifth commandment? Who can tell me what the fifth commandment is? Thank you so much, Pam. Honor your father and mother. It goes completely against God's laws of honoring your parents, of honoring your father, of honoring people. Like the whole idea of the commandments is that the first four about, is about how you connect to God, the last six about how you connect to each other. So it goes completely against the laws of God. It goes completely against the nature of God, who is love, according to 1 John 4, 8. And it goes against the divine revelation expressed in Jesus, in whom... It commended the love of God, according to Romans 5.8. But this is a phrasing Jesus uses to describe the exclusivity of one's commitment to himself in a personal relationship with him. He's trying to, to explain that this personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself is to take priority over every other relationship you hold on earth. It's like marriage. Jimmy, how long have you been married for? 10-ish years. 10-ish. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So he's been married 10-ish years. In his vows, Jimmy made the claim and the vow and the covenant before God, before all of us, and to his wife, that he is going to be exclusively hers. And every other relationship he shares, it's not that he doesn't love other people or doesn't love his parents, but he is exclusively his wife's now. And that that relationship takes priority over his relationship with his friends, over his relationship with his job, over his relationship with his parents. It's not that he hates those people, although he might hate his job, I don't know. No, he loves his job, that's great. But it's the relationship with his wife that takes priority. Does that make sense? So it is too with Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, it's not that you don't prioritize these other relationships, it's that my relationship takes precedence over everything else it, it re, and here's what's crazy when you prioritize your relationship with jesus all these other relationships actually grow deeper um how can i put it they actually are more fulfilled you become more loving in those other relationships as you prioritize your relationship with jesus c.s lewis puts it this way i really like the way he puts it he says when i have learned to love god better than my earthly dearest I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. 
in so far that as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Which basically means this. This is a really fancy way of Matthew 6.33. Of if I seek first the kingdom of God, what happens? All these other things are added to you. As you cherish your relationship with Jesus, you know what happens naturally? You cherish the relationship with your wife. That as you cherish your relationship with Jesus, you know what happens naturally? That you cherish the relationships with your children. That as you honor God in, in your life, what happens? Then you honor people in your workplace. Then you honor friendships that you hold. When first things are put first, then second things are not suppressed, but increased. So it's important then for what? For us to let these things go, to release them unto the Lord, commit them unto him, because it is then that they can be increased. Prioritizing the person of Christ, prioritizing the cause of Christ, prioritizing your relationship with Christ results in a natural change inwardly as you, as Jesus puts it, go after and it's, it's reiterated in, in the second part. The first part in verse 26 is talking about relationships, letting go of those relationships and committing them to God. The second thing is talking about the burden. He says in verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now, when it comes to this aspect, I've heard people say, oh, that's my cross to bear. That's my cross to bear. If you were going to bear the cross of Christ, it means this. Expect hardship. Expect difficulty. Expect opposition. Because you live by a set of values found within the scriptures that are completely contrary to what the world has to say today. Where the world says, look out for number one. You do what you do to get ahead. Jesus says, no, I'm going to be there to uplift you. I'm going to be there to support you. Jesus says that you come alongside people. That if somebody asks you for a, for, for a cloak, give them a shirt, give them your cloak as well. That if somebody asks you to go one mile, you go with them too. That's what Jesus says for us to do. And yet, the cross of Christ means the opposition, the hardship, the difficulties that he went through, we will only have a taste of. Because he's gone through them for us. And the reason why that is, because the kingdom that we belong to is not of this world. We belong to a, a, a new kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of his dear son. As a Christian born again of his spirit, we are made new creations. We are citizens of heaven. We are washed in the blood of the lamb. We are forgiven of sin. We are redeemed to a new life. And we are made alive. And we are made, we are made alive in Christ. If you look at John 15, verses 18 to 21, we read this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember I told you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you also. 
If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You see, letting go is about releasing relationships to the Lord. Letting go is about committing your burdens to him. It's about, as Henry shared at camp, Psalm 16.8, it's about keeping our eyes always on the Lord. With him at our right hand, we will not be shaking. We are to commit whatever it is that we are going through, we are commit those relationships, those friends, our very lives to him, letting go of what this life holds to take hold of that which is worth so much more. One of my favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, when, uh, where the whole realm of nature mind that we're an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Everything here is just to have something so much more. When you count the cost and look, okay, that's, that's worth so much more than what I have now. So counting the cost involves letting go. That means on our part, to have a bit of courage to let them go, to commit them unto the Lord. So counting the cost means letting go. Counting the cost also means eliminating the unnecessary. When you look at verses 28 through to 32, it's a long passage. I won't read it again. Have a look at it. But it's talking about if, if you're going to build something, what are you going to do? You have to look to see whether you have enough into it. If you want to get started, make sure you have enough to see it through. If you want to get into a war, make sure you have enough firepower to take on someone that's far more powerful. Counting the cost also means eliminating the unnecessary. Last week, we looked at Zacchaeus climbing the tree. He counted the cost of performing such actions. He weighed up that the reputation that he had as a tax collector, the public humiliation of a grown man climbing a tree, the potential danger of falling out of that tree, and his desire to see Jesus, you know what? He weighed all that up, and he said, it's worth it. It's worth it. I'll climb that tree. I may fall out, but I'll climb it. Oh, you're, a, you're a grown man, but I'll climb it. You know, I'm a tax collector. My reputation is a tax collector, but I'll climb it. It is far worth it that I might see Jesus. He counted the cost until he eliminated the unnecessary. You read in Luke chapter 7 about the woman of ill repute who goes into Simon the Pharisee's house to wash Jesus' feet with an alabaster box of perfume and then dry his feet with her hair. This is a, a woman, many say it was a prostitute, going into a religious man's house where she would have been looked down on. We should have had eyes on and jeers and thinking, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are? What right do you think you have to come into this home? She weighed all that up and she wanted to be near Jesus and show and submit herself before him. She, weighed, she counted the cost of what could have happened and she said, it's worth it. It's worth it. I will give that up to be in the presence of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, when the leper comes before Jesus, same thing. A man that's uh, an outcast, a man that has his own, even his own place outside of the city walls, who walks into the city and with the jeers, with the fears of people even stoning him, harming him physically, throwing things to him. So he could be, he weighed all of that up. He weighed all that up to come before Jesus and say, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. You know what he did? He weighed it all up and he said, it's worth it. It's worth it. 
And he cast all that to the side to be in the presence of Jesus. So for many of us as followers of Jesus, perhaps we've never really weighed up. We've never really counted the cost or considered what what price we need to pay to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe we've never actually weighed that up. I, I know people, I, I know people who have, for want of a better word, come to know Jesus because it was the popular thing to do. And so when hardship came, when trial came, when difficulty came and the solutions weren't solved right away, they turned their back on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus wasn't giving them what they wanted. They didn't count the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. I love the wonderful example Ray Comfort gives in his sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret. He said, if you're on a plane and you're told by the stewardess, put on this parachute, it'll make your life better. It'll make your flight better. So you sit there with the parachute on, people start looking at you. People start going, hey, look, there's Tommy. He's, he's wearing a parachute on a plane. What a silly thing to do. Oh, What's Tommy doing? He's a bit of an egg. What's he? He's wearing it. Oh, and people start giggling. People start laughing. People start making fun of Tommy because he's wearing a parachute on a plane. Why? Because he got told the, the, the parachute would improve his flight. But if the stewardess goes to Tommy and says, Tommy, put on this parachute because we are going into the turbulence. We may crash. You'll need this to jump out of the plane and survive. So he'll put it on. When people sit there and start making fun of him, <laughs> look at Tommy. He's wearing a parachute. What an idiot. Sorry, I know you're not an idiot, bro. But what an idiot. Oh, what a fool. What a, he doesn't care. You know why he doesn't care? Because he didn't put on the parachute for a safe flight or an enjoyable flight. He put on the parachute to save his life. And so he'll put up with the... He weighed it up. He weighed up the cost. It's either versus a, a life that will be saved or a life that is comfortable. And, because that, and a lot of people look at Jesus that way. They look at Jesus as being, he's going to give me a good life. They look at Jesus and say, I'm going to be comfortable. He's going to solve all my problems. That I won't have any hardships. And then when people start making fun of you for being a follower of Jesus, then you're like, oh, wow, okay. I didn't receive that, that, that blessing or that comfort or whatever it is. But Jesus isn't there. Like, like what uh, one preacher said, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. That's why he came. He came to deliver us from sin. So when those things do arise, which they're bound to do, when you, you know, they, they've never considered the, that following Jesus might not end up in earthly success. It might not end up having physical needs met, or it might not even have a life free of hardship. So when those things do occur, which they are bound to do, people haven't counted the cost of what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then they turn their back or end up falling away from him. Um, one guy, Jesus is not about behavior modification. He's not here about giving you a happy life. Jesus came into the world too, as in Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to make alive those people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and to redeem a people enslaved to their sinful nature from sin's condemnation. But remember, this is when you're a disciple of Jesus, he makes this point in verse 26, okay? He makes this point of saying, if any man come to me. We've, in the fact that we're coming to him, we are making the choice to submit and to humble ourselves before him and to the standards and to the calling of what being a disciple is, okay? That's what, that's what we're, and, but it's not about, 
I was talking with a brother about this yesterday. It's not about us trying harder. It's not about us. If I do this and I, I, I work harder at this, then I can achieve this. It's not about that. But it is about, it is about effort, putting in the right effort. There's a really fine line here. This guy, Richard Foster, like I said, I recommend this book to everybody, um, Life with God. He puts it this way. All the disciplines are, uh, sorry, <clears throat> all the disciplines are permeated by the enabling grace of God. When he says disciplines, he's talking about Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, etc., etc. okay? The spiritual disciplines. So they're permeated by the enabling grace of God. But do not misunderstand. There are things for us to do. Daily grace never means inaction or total passivity. We will encounter multiple moments of decision where we must say yes to God's wills and yes to God's ways. It's not about us working harder, but rather as one Peter, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5 says, about us making the effort to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. We make the effort to add to those things in our relationship with Jesus as we look to follow him. And as we look to follow him, what happens? You eliminate those things that are unnecessary. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry I keep picking on Jono, it's like when Jono does run in his marathon, and we look at that in Hebrews chapter 12, yeah, about laying aside every weight and the things that so easily entangles us. It's about laying those things out so we can run effectively, so that we can run well, run without hindrance, that we're not entangled in those things. That's what a, counting the cost means. Counting the cost means that there are stuff. My, my wife is great at budgets. She's great at budgets. I'm terrible at sticking to budgets. But she, she'll have a look. We'll sit down and we'll look at things together. And she'll say, okay, well, we need to eliminate this, eliminate this, eliminate this. All right, then we'll do that. And, and that's what we do. So we weigh things up as to what things we can do, what things we can't. And we get rid of those things that are unnecessary in order for us to achieve that goal. So it is with our relationship with Jesus. If we are a disciple of Jesus, we're like, okay, then, then weighing up those things, this is conducive to my relationship with Jesus. This will, this will benefit me in my walk with him. This won't. Binge watching my Netflix show, that's not really helpful. You know, listening to worship music, I find that beneficial. Oh, hanging out with those guys that I know will tempt me in certain ways. I really shouldn't do that. Ah, but, but maybe fellowshipping with a brother here, that, that'll be beneficial to me. It's about weighing those things that are conducive, that would help you in your relationship with them as a parent, as a grandparent, as an employee somewhere, whatever it might be. But it means counting the cost, means having to look at things practically. And so when you put your hand to the plow, you're not one of these guys that are looking back. Okay? So counting the cost means letting go. Counting the cost also means eliminating the unnecessary. But counting the cost also gives you clarity. Look at the last two verses, verses 34 and 35. It says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit for neither the soil nor, uh, nor, or, nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, something I want to make clear. This isn't talking about salvation. It's talking about discipleship. It's talking about the closeness and the intimacy that you have with the Lord. It's not about you losing your salvation. It's, it's about <clears throat> if you're not walking with or understanding of the privilege that we have as Christ's disciple. 
because what happens is the effectiveness, the impact of being close to Jesus will never be fully experienced. Um, when my wife and I were, were dating, when my wife and I were dating, and I, I don't know, how many of you guys actually did this? Like, how many of you guys like, spent hours on end talking, talking to your, 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 your girlfriend at the time, soon to be fiance, just spent hours talking with them on the phone? How many of you guys actually did that? Nobody? Oh, Helen, was it Helen? Wow. Oh, yeah, we got, we got, wow, we got like four people. Okay, okay. All right. But like, <laughs> okay, we're going to have a marriage enrichment course coming out of that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but those, those, those sorts of things. Like, I, I love talking to my, phone, my wife on the phone. I used to do that. I used to drop her off. You know, and then I'd get home, and she'd call just to make sure I got home. This is back in the day. We had, didn't have mobile phones back then, so you just had to be sitting in the hallway on the floor talking to, you know, or, or, if you're, or if you're fortunate, we never had one of those really long cords that, that you could actually hide in a room and, and have the cord under the door. We never had that. But we'd sit down in the hallway and just sit there, oh, yeah, talking, and people walking past, get off the phone, Joe. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, anyway. So you know, I, I really I, yeah, I, I enjoyed those moments, but... The impact, like once we were married and actually I could see my wife 24-7, that was infinitely better. Infinitely better. To be able to sit down and just spend time with her and to know. See, when, when, you, when, when it says how you're, you, if, if a salt loses its saltiness, I, I had a look on, online. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. It can be diluted. It can be diluted. But you need a whole bunch of water to get rid of the actual salty taste of it. But salt doesn't lose its saltiness. So the, the picture that Jesus is giving is basically if it loses its saltiness then, and, and it's good for nothing, it's like you shouldn't. As a disciple, you shouldn't lose your saltiness. You shouldn't. It, it, it's, just, it's just natural. It's a part of you. But if it does, it says if it ever did, then it's just not good for anything. It's not even good for the manure pile, for compost. It's not even good for the soil. It's not good for anything. It's like me being a preacher that has no voice. That's, that's what it is. It's pointless. And so, if a, that, that's what, so that's what he's talking. He's talking about like either the gifts that qualify you for ministry, they may cease. It might talk about the, the doctrines of the gospel, which might be departed from them. It, it might be the power of the Spirit that seems to have just left you as you have sought to, to live a life of holiness. You become unprofitable. You become unprofitable in the work of the Lord. You become unprofitable in the ministry of His gospel. And that's why it's like like salt, it's unfit for, for any use, and it's thrown out. Um, one guy, the, the commentary, the gill, I can't remember the guy's first name, but he says, salt is good for nothing but to make things savory and to preserve from putrefaction. And when it has lost its savor, it is of no use. No use to the land or dunghill. It makes things barren. It's not fruitful. So too ministers of the word, when they have dropped the savory doctrines of the gospel or have quitted from their former seeming, uh, from, from their former seeming savory and exemplary conversations as their usefulness is gone. Basically what he's saying is everything from, everything from fellowship and, and talking and impact in the lives of others within the church, useless. How you shine as a light with the light of the gospel, useless. Your light becomes dimmed. It becomes no good. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about here. 
And so when I say that the clarity is gained is because being a disciple of Jesus Christ, being a Christian is a serious thing. It's not a game to be played. People's eternal destinies, including your own, is at stake. It's, it's like, I, I love being a child of God. I love coming to church and having fun with brothers and sisters. I love meeting with you guys. It's such a blessing. And you bless me in so many ways. But we're in a war, a war for people's souls. We hold the answer to life's biggest questions. We have a message that can transform lives. We've experienced grace that has made us completely new creations. We have a love that goes beyond what anything in this world, anything in this world offers. That's why. That's why clarity is gained, so that we might see the blessing of being called God's child, and that it's not something to take lightly. That we might understand the privilege of, of knowing and of being known by God. That's nothing to sneeze at. I like Galatians 4 9. You know, now that you know, or rather are known by Him, that's amazing. That, you, that God knows your name. The position that we've been granted to enter into God's throne room and talk with the creator of the universe, that's mind-blowing. That you've got the ear of God himself to talk to him and pour out your heart and ask him for help. That is amazing. See, the, the, point, the point of today's message about counting the cost is it's not to make you feel bad. It's, it's, it's not to make you like say, oh, bad Christian. It's not to fill you with information and, and sit there and say, well, I know this, that, and the other. No, I, I want you to know, I want you to know that God and his love for you desires you to be his disciple because of that connection that he established with you, established with you in Jesus Christ. That's something that he cherishes. And that's something he wants you to cherish. It's something that he wants you to experience. It's something that he, he wants you to go deeper in. That's what he desires. And he's made that known to us in the person of Christ. It's to encourage us as we walk with him and as he walks with us that we will discover the wealth of being with the Lord as the most precious, as the most valuable, as the most worthwhile relationship we have in our lives. That's why. And I pray that you will see that. That we will be like as in Psalm 16, 5 and 7 says this, Lord, actually 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. That we would know that. That we are content with him being our portion. That we're content with him being our lot. That we are content with him being our all and all. That's why. And then the fact that he says, if you come after me, this is what's going to cost you, but this is what you'll get. That when you give this, you get me. That's why. So that we might let go, that we might prioritize, and that we might see clearly the greatness of our Savior. That's why. So with that, brothers and sisters, I just want to be upstanding and I'll close on a word of prayer. 
And, and, it, and I pray, even just after, after I close in prayer, the blessing of the brothers and sisters next to you, who in your fellowship with them is a means by which God can draw you closer to him as well. So spend time in fellowship with each other as well. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are humbled. Well, I am humbled. Humbled by the fact that we have the honor and privilege to not only call you Father, but to be called by you, your child. I pray that you will help us to see the greatness, the, 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 the value, the, the preciousness of what it is to be called your child. And that we might respond to the call you have placed on us to be your disciple, to spend time in your presence, to spend time with you, to hear what you have to say to us, to dwell in, in the scriptures and, and have the greatness of your love revealed within its pages. Father, we pray today that as we, that as we look to follow you, that as we come to you, we will let go of the things of this life, that we will commit them to you. Father, that we will eliminate those things that are unnecessary that hold us back from the deepness of relationship and the deepness of intimacy that you have called us to. And Father, that we might see clearly the work that you are doing by your hand in each of our lives. Father, only you can do this. We pray that by your spirit, you will stir all of our hearts, that by your spirit, you will excite our souls, that by your spirit, you will draw closer to us. So we ask for you, Lord, to be glorified in this place, in each of our lives, and in our homes. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.